0: Welcome to Extraordinary People, the podcast that highlights people who inspire others, have made significant contributions to the world, or who have overcome adversity. This show is hosted by Shirley Wachtel, author, educator, wife, mother, and grandparent. Learn more and subscribe today at ShirleyWachtel.com. And now, here's my grandma, Shirley Wachtel. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Extraordinary People. Today, I'm just delighted to have with us Nicole Marshall. Nicole holds a bachelor's degree from Fordham University and dual master's degrees in nurse midwifery, and women's health from Columbia University. Nicole's interest in women's health combined with her passion for social justice and women's rights drew her to a career in midwifery. She currently works as a staff midwife in a high-volume urban hospital serving a resource-poor community in Patterson, New Jersey. Since beginning her career in in 2006, Nicole has worked in many settings, including as a research clinician at Albert Einstein College of Medicine, as a health educator in Uganda, and as a midwife in a small midwife-owned private practice in New York City. Nicole provides holistic women's health care and is passionate about reproductive justice. And as a matter of fact, Nicole is a cousin of ours that we don't see nearly as often as we would like. And uh, I've always wanted to have the opportunity to um, kind of pick her brain on this unique profession. So welcome, Nicole. Thank you so much for having me. I'm wondering if, um, is this a a feel? Because it is uh, not that common nowadays, I would say um, that you 've always wanted to go into you know
1: that 's a great question when I was um, an undergraduate, I had never heard of midwifery it 's not you know it 's definitely not that common um, and so i studied I studied environmental science and um, i was pre med I was interested in medicine I was interested in the environment I was interested in um, sort of environmental justice issues. I went to college in the Bronx um, and I became aware that asthma was a major problem affecting kids in the Bronx. And um, all of these various things piqued my interest. And I thought that to do um, women's health and to work in the healthcare field, I needed to become a doctor. So I studied pre-med and when it came time to apply for medical school, I really sat with it and I really thought about it. And um, I, it, something about it just didn't, didn't sit exactly right. Um, and I worked at the end of college. I went on this, um, global justice, uh, trip to Belize and there I met midwives and, um, I thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing. They practice medicine, but they are also, they also do it in this holistic way And I said, oh, wow, it's too bad they midwives don't exist in the United States. And one of these women said to me, they do, they sure do. Um, So that was when I kind of went back to the drawing board and said, oh, how do I how do I do this? Um, I ended up having to go back to school because you need completely different prerequisites than you need for medical school. And it was a little bit of a circuitous path. But um, that's sort of how I found my way.
0: Okay. um, so what what is it about this field that draws you into it, you know, away from the traditional way of having babies? What what would you say are the benefits um, to both mother and baby?
1: Well, right now, um, maternal health care and inequity in health care, particularly around childbirth, and the postpartum period uh, has has made the press. Um, it's, it's not a secret that in the United States, we over-medicalize everything, uh, but particularly women's health and particularly childbirth, we have something like a 30% C-section rate in the United States. Um, and the WHO and all of the um, overseeing medical bodies recommend a C-section rate around 10%. Like that's where you hit the sweet spot of saving lives, saving mom's lives and saving babies' lives, but also not um, overusing this procedure. Uh, That's quite a difference. Yeah, it's a huge difference. Um, So the WHO target for C-sections is somewhere between 10 and 15%. Um, Midwives um, really work, we pride ourselves in individualized care, meaning that we, we get to know women really well. We don't believe in a one-size-fits-all model for pregnancy and for childbirth. So we really try to empower women through education. Um, we try to make all pregnant people part of their experience. We want them to lead the decision-making with informed evidence-based information. Um, and I think, you know, our outcomes are often better because of that. Um, so I think, you know, midwives, we we love technology and we believe in technology when it's necessary, but we don't believe in a one-size-fits-all model. Um, and that's not to say, you know, OBG- OBGYNs are some of our best friends. We couldn't do our job if we didn't have access to surgery. So that's right. not to say that uh, it's not to put down OBGYNs. It's just to say there's a time and place for midwives, and there's a time and place for
0: surgical experts. Um, I, what I, as far as the, um, I'm going to say the the physical and emotional health of the mother and, and again, the, the child, you know, the birth of the child, would you say that it's, um, um, if, if all goes well, would you say that it's a calmer birth experience using a midwife? I'm just curious.
1: Typically, yes. So midwives work in all fronts. We work in regular, normal, large labor and delivery units, um, we, but we also work in birthing centers. Um, birthing centers are a home like environment. So, um, in a birthing center, it's typically only a midwife and a nurse. Um, and in those environments, it's very calm. Um, there is not an operating room. There's not, um, it's the idea is to replicate your home environment to keep to keep things calm and tranquil. Um, and then of course, midwives, some midwives work in home birth. So, um, yes, there's definitely a different vibe.
0: And do we see that, um, with the, uh, responses of the mother and, and the baby, can you, can you readily observe those differences? Sometimes, yes. You know, for
1: a lot of women, uh, when they are pregnant, it's their first time interfacing with the medical system. So if you're a 25 year old woman who's never been ill and has never been in a hospital, and you suddenly walk into a hospital in labor, you are—it's like shell shock, right? We're—we're we're starting an IV. We're getting blood. We're—the lights are bright. We're tying you up to monitors. We're doing all of these interventions that are foreign to you, um, and often the physiologic response to that is panic—you know, you know, sort of mm-hmm. shutting down the normal process,
0: which That's isn't good. great. Which isn't right. great for the birth right. process, right? right.
1: So the more that women can feel comfortable and the more education that can happen during pregnancy around what happens during labor, um, coping mechanisms for labor, all of that is part of the ethos around midwifery care and um, really can change a woman's birth experience, even if it is in a hospital setting with bright lights. Just having the education and the preparedness um, mm-hmm. can be huge.
0: hmm would you say um that well first of all i wonder I, I don't know if you have any statistics of on this but um would you say uh, like how how what percentage of births are is it now is it like is it still a fairly small percentage or is that changing now
2: hmm.
1: of oh, births attended by midwives yes um you know, that's a really good question. It's probably around 10%, mm-hmm. um, but the statistics are murky because a lot of times our births are, um, like a, a lot of times midwives who work in hospitals things admit patients un, under an attending physician. So when the data is collected, it it might underrepresent midwives, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, when we work... You know, when we work in independent midwife-owned practices, our names are on everything. But in hospital practices, a lot of times the billing is done under an attending physician. So my best guess would be that it's a little higher than, the, than 10%. But I think in the, in the data, it's around
0: 10%. Okay. So, but that's no, in the United no.
1: States. In other parts of the world, midwives are the oh. primary um, providers for low-risk pregnancy.
0: Oh, yes. And um, I, along with that, you mentioned the idea of um, kind of almost recreating the home experience. I remember when I had my youngest son, Charlie, which was 34 years ago, that birth experience was different from the other two, because um, I wasn't taken into kind of a operating room atmosphere but it was kind of uh, in a small room in a hospital with you know a a little sofa and a chair and all of you know the kind of amenities and um, the lights weren't so bright so I would imagine even more that case is even more so for births nowadays right right in general
1: yeah, there has definitely been a movement toward um, treating people, birthing people with more, um, more humanely, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but it's not everywhere yet. It's still a work in progress.
0: So what safeguards are in place nowadays for people? um, They want to have a midwife. They want to have an at-home birth. And and I've heard some not so great stories about people who've tried doing that where it wasn't so easy. So what safeguards do you have? And even in the hospital, you're in the hospital, so certainly you're a lot closer to everything you need, but in general, you know, if someone were to want an an at-home birth, could that be done?
1: Yeah, so um, I can speak to, you know, sort of the New York, New Jersey uh, geographic location, but uh, here we... Have, you know, home birth midwife. I have never been a home birth midwife, so it's not my area of expertise. It really is sort of its own um, beast. But home birth midwives here uh, bring with them full resuscitation equipment. So they bring oxygen, they bring medication in the event of a postpartum hemorrhage, um, and they have systems in place that if, and, you know, of course, they're monitoring the baby with uh, something called a Doppler to listen to the baby's heartbeat. At, at any signs of distress, they would transfer the um, client to a hospital. So the big problem in the United States, home birth in other parts of the world are very, very common and part of the, part of the fabric of society. Here, home birth is sort of still considered um, outside of normal, sort of a little bit fringe. And so it's, the home birth midwives are not as well integrated to the hospital system. Um, some states allow home birth midwives to also have privileges in the hospital. Most of the time when you have to transfer a patient, it's because of something not emergent. So it's because labor has stalled and maybe the patient needs um, a rest or you know, needs some sort of relief, pain relief, or maybe a little bit of medication to make the contraction start up again, in which case there's no reason why a midwife couldn't continue to care for that patient after transfer to a hospital setting. Um, but a, one of the big problems in the United States is a lot of home birth midwives are not allowed to have privileges in hospitals. Um, so a good midwife will transfer their patient at the first sign of distress. And depending on the state, will either continue to care for the midwife and continue to um you know, provide the interventions necessary and then ultimately deliver the baby or transfer care to an OBGYN and, and then become sort of the, the patient's um, advocate. Um, but, you know, when you say safeguards, I think, you know, it is within our scope of practice to recognize a problem when it, you know, arises. Most obstetric problems you'll see signs of before it becomes urgent. Um, now, there are very real obstetric emergencies, um, for example, um, a postpartum hemorrhage, a severe postpartum hemorrhage, um, or a there's something called a cord prolapse when the umbilical cord sort of comes out before the baby, and um, you you really need an emergency room, you really an operating room. Um, but there are also, and those risks are extraordinarily rare. And um, there are also risks with hospital birth. There are very real risks that we don't talk about with hospital birth over intervention, risks of surgery, uh, you know, uh, over intervention leading to unnecessary cesarean infections, leading to unnecessary um, morbidity for a mother, um, mm-hmm. blood loss, infection. Um, so it's, I, I, I support home birth. It's not my area of expertise, but um, I think it's important that pregnant people understand both risks um, and go into their decision-making with eyes wide open.
0: Yes, so true. Now, um, you uh, a large part of what you do has to do with prenatal care. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of that. And are there any, can you give us any, um, new insights on, um, how that field is perhaps changing, or maybe in the advice that we give Mm. um, mothers, because there was a time when nobody said, uh, said anything about a mother smoking, you know, before childbirth. So um, can can you perhaps let us know how you would advise um, mothers who are going to have babies nowadays? Yes.
1: So, um, starting your prenatal care
0: early is
1: awesome. Um, when you're trying to get pregnant, taking a folic acid supplement is a great idea, either a vitamin, which has folic acid in it, or just a folic acid supplement. Um, establishing your prenatal care early is, is, is great because we can talk about nutrition. We can talk about anxiety, um, all these things that, that, pregnant women experience, but are often not given enough time to talk about, or um, just not even, you know, they think they're going through it alone. And so maybe they're too embarrassed to talk about it with their provider. We also have tests that we can do as early as 10 weeks of pregnancy for um, Down syndrome, trisomy 13, trisomy 18, and can also tell you the sex of the baby, which everybody gets excited about. Um, So we have we, we have genetic testing we can do on the mom that's standard now. So we have, we just have such better technology, um, that we can pick up potential issues earlier. And, um, and, you know, every prenatal visit can also involve a lot of education. Um, so prenatal care early is awesome. Finding somebody you trust and somebody you feel like you can connect with is important. Um, We've started a new thing at my job uh called centering pregnancy, which is group prenatal care. Mm -hmm. And it has been absolutely incredible. I, Mm -hmm. I did this kind of care in my first job um in the Bronx, and then I hadn't done it for a while. Um, and then we started it at my current job. And basically group prenatal care gets about um somewhere between like five and five and eight women. Right now, it's just the pregnant patient because of COVID. But in my past life, we would even bring partners into these group visits. And um, you would have your private visit where we check the baby. We do whatever blood work we need. Um, but then we'd also, we would also have a topic of discussion. So it's a two-hour visit. And we do, uh, let's say the first visit is about... Um, common discomforts of pregnancy. So back pain, nausea, all of the things you can do to combat those things. Um, the visits later on in the pregnancy are about labor preparation, um, comfort measures, things you can do at home, how you, when, when to go to the hospital, those sorts of things. The beautiful thing about group prenatal care is um, it's, a, it's a peer... I'm a facilitator. I am not... I, I My job in that setting is to correct misinformation and to engage all the participants and to facilitate discussion within the group, as opposed to it being, um, you know, I'm the doctor, you're the patient. So the idea is to make women feel really comfortable. A lot of times women will exchange information with each other and then they have lifelong friends out of this. Um, and it, it has actual, it sounds hokey, but it has actual research behind it. It reduces the risks of preterm labor, um, improves birth outcomes, more higher rates of vaginal delivery and um, such amazing benefits for the patients in terms of mental health. Absolutely. From, uh, on top of physical health. Yeah. Um, and when you think about it, you might be sitting in a waiting room waiting for your doctor or midwife for an hour. Instead, you, are, you go right to this room, you spend the entire time engaged. Um, So that is it's just incredible. And I wish that this was the I wish that this was everywhere as an option for women, because it really is incredible.
0: That truly is a great idea, because the idea of community um, is so important. Exactly. Um, uh, Now, one of one of the words that you brought up just before is um, anxiety. And that struck me. Um, can anxiety have an effect? Obviously, it affects the mother. Can it have any um, concrete effect on, a, on, a, on a, a, a fetus?
1: Yeah, you know, the, the research is murky around that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we, we talk about stressors like, you know, as potential causes of preterm labor. Uh, and we do know that Women, there are certain risk factors for things like preterm labor. One is um, food insecurity. Um, Being a a single mother is actually a risk factor for preterm labor. So it's pretty easy to make, make the leap from there that mental health impacts outcomes. It's just a very hard thing to measure.
0: Right. Um, so we talked about prenatal care. So what's the situation? Somebody goes in, and it, you know, here's here's your baby. It's a healthy birth. Do you say lots of luck, or does it <laughs> continue? You know, you know, that's that? a great question. So,
1: you know, that is an area that the United States.
2: Um, can you hear me? Yes. Hear me? Um. I'm going to pick up my daughter from school, so I don't have too much more time. But um, that is an area that the United States fails miserably at. Um, in other uh, countries, such as uh, the Netherlands, Denmark, Sweden, uh, Europe, all over Europe, there are nurses who come and do home after somebody has a baby. Very regular home visits. They check on the baby and they check on the... Here, we don't see you again. When you walk out the door of the hospital, if you have had a vaginal uncomplicated delivery, we do not see you again for six weeks. Mm -hmm. If you've had a C-section, we see you at one week to check your... uh, Between one and two weeks to check your incision and then again at six weeks. But um, we miss a lot of things in that window. I mean, you probably remember, and I can surely remember when I had my babies. um, Those six weeks are crazy. Oh, yeah. Uh, Physically, emotionally, um, particularly for new moms, but for everybody. Um, So I, I think, you know, we miss a lot of things. We miss physical things, but more important, equally important, we miss postpartum depression, postpartum psychosis. Um, real, real things. A lot of times it's the pediatrician who will, who will call us and say, Hey, I think this mom is going through something because the pediatricians see the babies much more frequently in that, in that first six weeks. So, um, yeah, I think it's an area that we really, that we really need to work on in the United States. In, in places with um, wealthy, you know, wealthy people can access postpartum doulas and lactation consultants and, um, you know, whole, uh, postpartum nurses, but it's all out of pocket. None of that, I mean, I shouldn't say none. Lactation consultants are once in a while covered by insurance, but most of the time those resources are out of pocket.
0: Yeah, that's a great point, great point that you're making. So lastly, before I let you go, Nicole, you are there for arguably the most important day in most people's lives. And I'm talking about both the baby that's being born as well as the mother. Um, And I want to know in, you know, all your years of, um, uh, being there for the child's birth, um, are there any experiences that stand out? Any, any, both scary perhaps, um, or dramatic, and and just other experiences that might fill you with a special kind of elation.
2: Mm, you know, uh, it, it, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I'll tell you something that, that really informed the way I practice um, that happened to me early on in my career. So midwives generally um, advocate for less intervention, natural birth. We are for sure not opposed to, you know, plenty of my patients get up girls and I support that. But when I was a young, new midwife, I worked in the South Bronx, and I had this incredible um, patient who came in in active labor, very, uh, it was very sort of um, unable to, you know, a little bit out of control, didn't have the resource, didn't have the sort of resources to, to cope with labor, hadn't had any education. And I was able to sit with her and support her and she wanted an epidural and I called the anesthesiologist and the anesthesiologist was tied up in the, in the operating room with surgery. And we got, I got her through labor, and I um, felt so... She ended up having the baby. Uh, she had a beautiful vaginal delivery, and it was unmedicated. And I said to her, you did it. You were amazing. You did that. You, I know you wanted an epidural, but, you know, I'm so sorry the anesthesiologist couldn't get here in time, but you did that. You just had the most incredible birth. And she said, it wasn't incredible to me. I wanted an epidural. Right. And it taught me something. And what it taught me was... This is not about me. This is about this particular person at this particular time. And I, I did everything I could have done for her, and I'm proud of what I did for her. But I can't put my experience on somebody else. Does that make sense? Like It's all about trying to understand what this patient wants, and trying to help her have a fulfilling experience, even if that might not be the experience I envisioned for her. And that, and that has really influenced the way that I've practiced ever since then. I've really been attuned to what does this person want?
0: Right. And let's That's figure out a way
2: to make that happen, you know, to the best of our ability
0: that's great and just have you have you uh, been there for the birth of twins or you know multiples no you know these days honestly most multiples are born in the operating room so um, you know that's that's
2: always done with a physician in our
0: practice. Okay. But I'm sure, you know, every birth that you're you know, a part of in this way is, is a special experience for you. It
2: absolutely is. It really is. I mean, it feels so like such an honor to be there at, you know, such a pivotal time in people's lives. And I try not, you know, it's easy. It's easy when it's your job and you're on the labor floor for 12 hours or 24 hours to get tired and to get, you know, grumpy, particularly when it's busy. And I try my hardest to remind myself that this might be my 15th year doing this, but this is this woman's first baby or second baby. And she'll remember this forever. Right. So... You know, you may, Nicole, you may not have been able to eat for eight hours, but put a smile <laughs> on your face.
0: You know, I just, I love your passion and I love your dedication to this field. We need more people like you and just keep doing what you're doing.
2: Thank you. Thank you. And hopefully you.
0: we'll get to see each other at another cousin's reunion uh, in yeah. a little while. <laughs> I would love that. I would love that. Thank Take you for care. having me. Okay. Oh, my <laughs> pleasure. Take care now.
2: Okay. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Extraordinary People. To learn more about Shirley Wachtel and to subscribe to the show, head to com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Extraordinary People.